Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, welcome to Parshat Re'eh. And Avi, I'm going to dive right in. And I want to know, you know, we we read a lot about how Hashem is a a jealous God and we should have no other gods before Him. And we are constantly reminded that Hashem created everything. Hashem brought us out of slavery. These are all fantastic reasons, of course, to worship Hashem. Uh, and to build a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And at the same time, I can't help but notice that repeatedly throughout the Torah, and especially in this Parsha, we are reminded that we cannot have any other gods, any other anything, um, and, and not because of all the positive reasons necessarily, but more so because we're reminded repeatedly to kill anyone who believes otherwise if they're hiding in the community, if they're friends, even if they're family, and, and so on and so forth. And I guess the big question that comes to my mind is, we have this almighty creator who literally fathomed every single thing, and Hashem is is jealous? Hashem is worried that someone is going to forget the Almighty? I, I guess I, I just, I think there's so many positive reasons. It seems kind of baffling to me that, that jealousy, which is such a human thing, and an animal thing, not even a human thing, an animal thing, it's a base uh, animalistic desire and, and need. Hashem should be worried? I I, I don't know, and, and again, obviously I'm... Uh, coming up with human emotions for this, but it doesn't make sense to me. So please, help us understand. So Akiva, while you're correct that we often anthropomorphize God and attribute to God human characteristics, we do that to help ourselves. And I want to take us back to the beginning of this week's Parsha, where it says, Re anochi noten lifneichem hayom bracha uklala. Behold, or see, that today I put before you a bracha, a blessing, uklala, and a curse. And then it goes on to talk about the curse. And the curse is the idea of idol worship. And it's interesting, because on the one hand, it's not, uklala is a very serious thing, right? It's not a neutral state. And I want to suggest that part of the reason that is, is because, God is saying, if you worship me, that is a blessing. If you don't worship me, you're in a neutral state. In other words, God is not saying, the, at least not at this point, that the, that the requirement and the mitzvah is that you worship me, is that you bring these karbanos, is that you do this and do that for me. 
God's saying, you can be in that neutral state, and that's okay. The klala, the curse, comes when you begin to worship other gods. And we see that may be because time after time, when the Jews do that, they begin, first of all, worshiping another god as an outright rejection of Hashem and Hashem creation, Hashem's creation of the world and Hashem's uh, dominion over the world. So it's not just, I've chosen not to, right, I'm neutral on God. It's, I'm actively putting it in God's face. Let me, let me toss this idea at you for a second, though, Avi, because if one believes that God created everything, if one believed in lesser gods, which if we look at the, the Aserah de Dibrot, the, the way it's written is, you shall have no other gods before me. So one could argue, theoretically, that if one still believes in the Almighty's power and um, omni-everything, um, one could theoretically have lower levels that would not be rejecting HaKadosh Baruch So that is an unfortunate misunderstanding through translation and interpretation, right? The word lifanai in the Aserat Hadibrot that talks about um, that talks about you shall have no other gods lifanai, right? Which we translate often in Hebrew to English as before me. Before me in English means in front of me, right? You were before me in line. In Hebrew, lifanai literally means in front of me, meaning in existence before me. And so God is outright rejecting the idea of any other gods, right? Other gods, Hashem is saying, are a figment of your imagination. Which was created by Hashem. I understand. But just because something was created by Hashem doesn't mean it's okay to worship it. We don't worship the sun even though the sun was created by Hashem. We don't worship trees, even though trees were created by Hashem. Just because something was created by Hashem doesn't mean we worship it. Other people were created by Hashem. We don't worship them either, right? We are a monotheistic religion, which means we only believe in one God, right? And that God is non-observable, which makes it more difficult. It would be much easier if God was much more concrete, but it's, God is ethereal and unobservable. And that makes it more difficult. And therefore, there needs to be this idea of you shall not, right? And again, I'm going to suggest that the reason that Hashem puts this in place is not, as we might anthropomorphize God, because he, God would be jealous, but rather, the reason we say that this is the case is because this Parsha is really focused in on a social contract. And the social contract is the idea that you're about to go into Eretz Yisrael, and we want you to be able to have a positive social structure that includes worship of God and that includes the relationship you will have with each other within a religious framework. And therefore, this Parsha begins to lay out 
all of those pieces, that social contract, that social framework. And so this is where I'm going to throw it back to you, Akiva, and say, talk to us about social contract. Right? A lot of times we tell people, think for yourself. It's good to be an independent thinker. Is that generally true? And when is it good to, I'll use the phrase, subserviate ourselves to social thought versus when is it good for us to think independently? All right, so Avi, I like the idea of talking about social contracts and social structure. And before we get there, though, I am going to push back a little bit because I still don't have the answer to my question of if we reject God, why would God care? God doesn't need us. We need God. And so, ultimately, if we have other gods, which I agree would reject God, what difference does it make to Kaddish Baruch So, Akiva, I will suggest you answered your own question, which is, God doesn't need us. God doesn't care. But rather, God places this structure into place as part of the social framework in that if people are going to live together right, and be amicable with each other, there needs to be certain basic things upon which they agree. One of them, right? we know that one of the greatest items in history, one of the greatest conflicts in history that causes war is differences of religion and differences of religious beliefs. Right? If my God says I, I'm, that, that we are better and, and therefore I have to go kill you or convert you or take your land, right? that's not going to do anything very good. And specifically, right, if we look at, in this week's Parsha, it says, Lo asita po hayom. Right? You should not do just as was done here today, meaning in the places where there was idol worship. Ish kol hayashar be'enav, that each person gets to do what is good in his eyes, right? Using the singular masculine, which is really the singular generic. But what it's saying is, you don't get to make up your own mind and do what you want. Because if every person does what he or she wants, then you really end up with chaos. I decide I want to drive 75 miles per hour on the highway, you're going to drive 35 miles per hour on the highway. That is not a good recipe, right? I decide I want to be able to have a big open fire to cook my lamb in my front yard, and you decide you want to have, uh, you know, uh, a fence nearby, and you're a little bit worried about it catching on fire. If there are no rules, then society is going to fall into a bit of chaos. And so I want to suggest that a lot of this, this Parsha is, again, focused in on that. And here, too, the idea of you cannot, right, that we have a phrase in, in, in Jewish, as if that was a thing, but we have a phrase in Jewish, everybody making Shabbos for themselves, right? And that refers to the idea of everybody doing what he or she wants as an individual religiously, but without certain basic understandings and underlying agreements, it makes it very difficult, right? If your definition of kashrut is different than my definition of kashrut by a large margin, then inviting you over for, for, for a meal or my coming to your house for a meal 
could be very challenging. If we have a different understanding of what day is Shabbat, that's not going to allow a shul to function. So these are the kinds of things that I think Hashem is trying to get us to understand, that there needs to be basic social structure, and while people might understand that in when it comes to secular law, right? You have to have weights and measures, you have to have certain business dealings. Oh, that makes sense, but why can't I do whatever I want when it comes to religious life? There's the social structure there, because in many ways it is part of what keeps a community together. So at this point, I am going to turn it back to you so you can, again, tell us more about social structure. So Avi, I I appreciate your answer, and um, I will tell you, you fully and completely nearly answered the question about why social contracts and social structure is so important. So, Yashikoch, I don't really need to answer that one. Um, But I am going to instead answer a question that I thought of while you were um, going over this and talking about how without social structure and rules, we will fall into a murderous chaos of... um, And I'm going to quote the Torah here. You shall obliterate the names from that place... uh, destroy, and I'm no longer quoting, but basically, right, we, we are told as we enter uh, Eretz Yisrael, uh, we should destroy all the places, I am quoting, where the nations that you shall possess worship their gods. Um, again, so so this brings back that piece where you said that without structure we might fall into chaotic destruction, and yet here we are being commanded to have chaotic destruction. And I do call it chaotic destruction because right? Um, there were people living there, and they may have had different practices, but, and, and really, this is the piece about that social structure and that combination of how everything falls into play, I think, which would be that idea that your social structure does not function in the way that I think the social structure should. And the challenge with that is sometimes we are accurate, and sometimes we are wrong. Now, in this case, and I say this with obvious bias, we are talking about going into a land where the understanding was the people who were there were um, would sacrifice people, which I think most of us can readily agree is probably not the best social contract and social structure that we should have where people would um, uh, cohabitate with animals. Again, something that many of us would agree is something that's not a social, socially acceptable practice. And you notice I'm not saying all, I'm saying many, because I think that's the key to a social contract is if the majority agrees that something is acceptable, um, then the truth is, is it becomes accepted until, and in some cases, hopefully as soon as, a new majority comes about and speaks out against it. And right, we've seen this throughout history. We've seen this in, in, our, in, every, in every place we can look at. We've seen this with slavery. We've seen this with... Uh, Genocide. We've seen this with 
all sorts of different practices, just to name two very large ones. And so I think that's the key, is that social contracts, social structures are based off of what the majority believes is acceptable and ideally ethical. And hopefully, as soon as things are viewed to be unethical, immoral, or amoral, then a new loud minority, possibly a majority, will come and correct. There are also many times where we see the collapse of that social structure because it is a loud minority who is uh, taken extra power than it is warranted, and therefore the large majority at some point speaks out and says, no, this is not acceptable. And when that happens again, it's a positive in many ways because they are oftentimes overthrowing something that is not an acceptable practice, not an ethical practice. And we see this all throughout history. So I think that's the key, is the social contracts really do dictate behavior. And ideally, what it is that you know I think we're reading in the Torah and we're learning from the Torah is that to be governed by a set of laws which value human life, which value worshiping an almighty creator that does not want us to take each other's lives. And again, going back to what we were talking about before, it's not that the suggestion is that we want to get rid of those idolaters, but rather that we don't agree that idolatry is a good thing because of the potential practices that it lists and, and leads to. And so if we have a social structure and a set of rules that we can function with, in a more ethical and moral way, then I presume that that is what we're actually getting at. So this is kind of nice because you've answered your question and I've answered mine, but I think it was a lot of fun and hopefully uh, everybody's learned something interesting. <clears throat> I mean, the next question that I found in this week's Parsha was related to the idea of, of private altars having have a personal sacrifice. And I guess the way I look at it is I can understand completely the benefits of doing it as a community and the importance of having certain times of year where everyone gets together in the same place. Um, so I'm not asking about that. I'm more so asking about the, the nearest uh, equivalency that I can think of is the idea that, of course, it's best to daven with a minion. However, if you can't get to a minion for whatever reason, we don't say don't daven at home. We say daven by yourself. It's ideal to do this, but if you can't, you should still daven. And so I guess the question is, and and I'm going to kind of preempt with I'm not worried about, you know, hearing, well, we didn't want someone to do their own thing and sacrifice for an inappropriate way. I'm talking about somebody who was mafmir and knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing and how to sacrifice and what and when and how and who and couldn't make it for whatever reason to the community uh, or, of course, to, to Yerushalayim to sacrifice. So, so I want to know why those people couldn't necessarily do a sacrifice if they couldn't make it. So the answer to that second part is because we don't make rules for the minority. 
we make rules for the majority. And it would be the minority of people, right? Today we have a very quasi-learned community in the sense that people, anybody who is taking the effort to daven at home probably knows some amount of davening in order to daven at home, right? But karbanot were A, much more complicated, B, as much as you may want to hear it, it is something that could easily lead to everybody doing their own thing, right? After all, how many communities do we know that, uh, shul's so far away, we're going to have our own minion in somebody's house, right? And so the question is, when is that okay, and when does it Tifros minatzibor, does it separate from the community? And so this idea of, now I never have to go to Yerushalayim because I can just do it in my backyard, right, is, is an antithesis to part of what the goal was, which was to be part of a community, right? And again, you're talking about individual times and not the Chagim, but if you look at Pesach, Right? They would talk about when you bring the carbon Pesach, there would be multiple families that would come together to bring the carbon Pesach because you had to eat the whole thing in one night. And you're not going to eat, unless your family is incredibly large, you're not going to eat a whole sheep in one night, or a whole lamb in one night, um, just your family. And so families would get together. It was a social event. It was part of the retelling of Yitziat Mitzrayim. And the other piece is that when we look at bringing these karbanot, we have to ask ourselves, why would people do it? And I think that's where this idea in the Parsha of, but you can have meat, comes from, right? In other words, people were bringing karbanot so that they could eat the meat. And Hashem is saying, well, now you can eat the meat without bringing it as a karban. You can just shech the meat, just just prepare the animal properly and be able to eat the meat. You don't have to do it as a carbon in order to have meat. And therefore, it takes away some of the desire to, every time I want a steak, saying I have to bring a carbon in order to be able to have something to eat. Instead, I can just go get the steak. And that's okay. Versus... Previously, it would seem that if I wanted meat, I needed to bring a carbon, and therefore, well, if I have to do that, then the easiest way to do it is in my backyard. You know, Avi, it's funny you mentioned that the benefit of being able to get a steak without offering a carbon, um, and I'm reminded of how complicated it can be to do shvita properly. And so what I heard in part was it's acceptable to do shrita if you think you know what you're doing or if you found someone locally who knows how to do it and then you get it from them. But if you think you know what you're doing or if you found someone locally who knows how to do it, you can't have your own area for a korban. So that is correct in the sense that if somebody has been trained and has a misora, a, a, uh, a tradition that has been handed down to them of how to do shechita, and they can shech the animal, 
So one can do shechita in their own backyard. And in fact, even if we go back two and a half, maybe three generations in the United States, we would see that there were many communities where there was a community shochet, and that person was responsible for providing all of or most of the meat, uh, by that I include chicken, in that, that people were eating. Um, yet, at the same time, the idea of bringing a karban, right, is designated to a very specific place and a very specific time. And I think some of that has to do with the level of expertise that is required, in addition to the role, right? Anyone can be a shochet, kohen, levi, or yisrael. Only the kohen can really prepare the karbanos within the Beis HaMikdash. So Akiva, one of the pieces that it talked about in this Parsha that really interested me was this idea of all of the things that happen in the seventh year. The idea that slaves must go free and you must give them uh, give them wealth, a certain level of wealth, so that they're not leaving empty-handed. Um, the idea that all loans are canceled. The idea that you, even if the seventh year is upcoming, you should still give someone a loan, even though you know it may get forgiven. Um, and all of this, again, because I'm seeing this Parsha in the with the lens of social structure, uh, all of these seem to me to be about the importance of social structure and people who may have less, um, people who may have less financial abilities and financial means. Can you talk to us about what what it says about society when we care about those people who have less? I think it's just an understanding that all of the people in society are important. And because we can say that all of them are important, and why do we know that all of them are important? Because we don't allow just randomly killing people. So that's usually an indication that everybody has a certain level of value if we can't just go and take your life. Um, and similarly, to, to take it to a lesser extreme... Um, People who are in some ways have fallen on hard times or can't care for themselves or our laws didn't allow for them to care for themselves doesn't mean that we don't have the obligation to care for them because, again, we can say they are important. It, it reminds me of, you know, I was playing War, the card game, uh, which I don't recommend. It's, it's a terrible, terrible game. Uh, and it never ends. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting is whenever you're playing war, again, the card game, not uh, not with violence, um, we're always excited when we get the really, really high-level cards. You get the ace, the king. Oh, I won an ace in the war. I won your queen with my king. It feels great. We're never excited about winning the two or the three. But how do you win the game of war in cards? You get the entire deck. Which means 
four twos, four threes, four fours. They are just as important and just as necessary as the aces and the kings and the queens. And so, really, the lesson is right there. If you ever think that someone who needs to be taken care of isn't as important, try and win a game of war without them. So my question for the Shabbos table is this. We've spent the entire Parsha talking about social constructs and uh, really just how to treat one another. And, you know, this is, of course, the second of the eight weeks in between Tishabav and Rosh Hashanah that we have these special Parshiot which talk about similar things. So my question for the Shabbos table for everybody is, um, what are some of the social constructs that you find work within your community? And maybe what are some of them that don't, that you wish you could make a change to? And are you the minority, or are you the quieter majority that perhaps could make a good change? Thank Thank you for for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.